Welcome to the intersection of technology, cybersecurity, and society. Welcome to ITSP Magazine Podcast Radio. You're about to listen to a new episode of Audio Signals. Get ready to take a journey into the known, the unknown, and everything in between. Recorded at no specific point in time nor space, ITSP Magazine's co-founders Marco Cipelli and Sean Martin follow their passion and curiosity as they venture away from the intersection of technology, cybersecurity, and society to discover new stories worth being told. Knowledge is power, now more than ever. All right, here we go. Sean, for people that are watching the video, they know it's not just the two of us. You there? Sean? Is, are you in another dimension? <laughs> That's right. That's right. And uh, tech, technology's having fun with me. Oh, Sing. I see. I see. Yes. So uh, I, I didn't catch the intro there, Marco. Are you actually inviting me to join you for this? I did. And now I'm kind of uh, regretting <laughs> it, to be honest. That's right. You. <laughs> it would have gone much more smoothly if I wasn't. Uh, no, no. What I, what I was saying is that for people that are watching the video, we're not going to do the usual back and forth and then uh, tease who is on the show because people that are watching, they know that Larry Namachek is on the show, also known as Dr. Trek. And uh, we're going to learn why, because uh, there is some fascinating story behind and how he, he got involved into become such a such a fan of the show. And that come, I understand, from his uh, love for space and exploration and, and a lot of other things. So I, I'm not going to introduce you. I want you to introduce yourself. So everybody, Larry Namachek, welcome to the show. Whoa. Well, that's a big handoff, but thank you. Thank you, Marco <laughs> and Sean. For having me on and I, I appreciate this because you're you know I do a lot of Star Trek I have my live stream and my podcast and I talk with a lot of other folks on their podcasts and they tend to all be Trek and anytime I can bust out and go mainstream science and space it's great because I think anybody who calls themselves a space professional or a lot of scientists in general there's a little bit of Star Trek in their DNA somewhere I mean it was amazing when I got I had a couple of of nice insider tours around the Johnson's, I always want to say Johnson Man Spacecraft Center, the Johnson Spacecraft Center in Houston, and three-fourths of the people, just employees that I worked were all, somebody would introduce me with something about Star Trek, and they're like, oh yes, I'm here, because they wouldn't just say I'm a Star Trek fan, they'll say, I'm working at NASA because of Star Trek, you know, <laughs> grabbed me and sent me this way, but that's, when I was a kid, it was the time of the early launches, I remember mom and dad. I mean, I was growing up in Oklahoma, not rural Oklahoma, but like suburban adjacent central Oklahoma to Norman, where University of Oklahoma is. And and we, it was the days when you stopped and when there was a launch, because sometimes you weren't. Now I get it that in those days, people were like, it was like betting game almost. Is it going to get up? The first few years, right? <laughs> but I, everything stopped and my dad would come in out of the garden and my mom would wipe off her hands and come out of the kitchen and everybody would would watch the launch of whatever it was going up you know if it was a mercury flight or the early geminis and whatever and then we got to apollo but that was you know i was an i was a nasa kid and a space kid before i was a star trek fan or even a sci-fi fan or or much of anything else and that was the posters on my wall and you know i could tell you gumdrop and spider and you know besides columbia and eagle or charlie brown and snoopy or 
you know, I've gotten a little hazy on some of the later ones, but that was, you know, in the crew pictures and the names and, uh, and even to the point where in junior high, I had to do a term paper in one science class and I did it on Gemini as the forgotten or, or the middle child of the, you know, Apollo is the glory one and Mercury is with the pioneers and Gemini's kind of lost in there. I mean, it was, you know, I like sci-fi, but it was, I was very grounded in that in history. And I love history. And that's, that's, that got me on the road to what Star Trek is more than just being a sci-fi. But, you know, it doesn't surprise me because the connection is right there. I mean, if you, if you like one, uh, you have that, uh, that way of thinking of dreaming about space and exploration and discovery. So when uh, sci-fi shows up, I think it's right there. I don't, I don't see anything wrong with that. Well, and the folks at like this, the National Air and Space Museum at the Smithsonian agree with you every other swing of the political winds pendulum <laughs> because they have the original. No, I mean, you know, they have and 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 I get it. I'm not I don't mean politics as in people screaming, but I mean I I get some people's when you talk about museums and display and interpretation. Some people want if it's the Air and Space Museum, it's like, why do we have things that actually didn't fly, you know? But every other iteration, you know, Paramount gave the original 11 foot filming model of the big enterprise and uh, and a couple of other pieces. But at the time, they said this is what inspired, you know, fictional flights of fancy. And that's what inspired everybody who made it real, whatever the century was. And uh, there were there have been things along that way. And then you have someone, you know, then after a few 10 years, the next iteration comes back and says, why is this on display? This says this never flew. This has, that has nothing to do with reality. And then it goes into the, you know, storage for 10 years. And then it comes out again when the next swing comes back or when the franchise is popular and they think it'll get people in the front door. But, and currently, thank goodness right now, we're back to the, not just the enterprise, but other, other bits of, of from fiction and literature this is what inspired the dreamers to dream real dreams that made the hardware, you know, really work and got us off the ground and into orbit and, and beyond. So anyway, that's that's a very that's a thing that happens. People, you know, go back and forth. But the thing about Star Trek versus all the other, whether it's sci-fi or even like the superheroes, to me, it was like Star Trek. I mean, I didn't think about it consciously, but Star Trek is us in space, both historically and you know, hire a science consultant. And yeah, sometimes it gets muddled or the writers want this, but we try. And as the years go by, they've actually gotten even better at it about making the drama and the science work together without having to, you know, make people run screaming from the room that no science, you know, kind of a thing. So anyway, that's, that's, that's why. And so, yeah, we love Star Wars even, but I don't think, I mean, I got, I've been, you know, had the chance to have a tour of backstage, like the Johnson Center in Houston, and um, talk to people. Just meeting, being introduced to somebody, or just on the on the fly, and somebody introduces me and says something about Star Trek, and they and they'll say, you know, I'm here because of not just oh, I'm a Star Trek fan, but they'll say I'm at NASA because of Star Trek, or I'm in my field because of Star Trek, and you don't hear that. And I'm not trying to set off a clickbaity Star Wars Star Trek war here, but that's not what Star Wars is about. Well, I, Star Trek's about a lot. I mean, Star Wars is about a lot of other things, but that's not part of its. I met a Jedi yeah. the other day. He said he's a Jedi because of Star Wars. So, <laughs> just a little joke. Sorry. No, but yeah, I agree you, with you. You can throw a Battlestar Galactic in there as well, right? And just to yeah, completely yeah. mix it up. And 
so and I, I bring that up because I actually had I see behind you a lot of a lot of things <laughs> and I, oh. I can't even make out a lot of what the things are but I, I presume there are figurines and models and you know you know what I have there? I have my McCoy gallery up here that's figuring I don't really have there the things behind me are some of my books and some just just display things they're really like bags and a few they're more books and um promotional things more than figures and and all that and yeah well we are I, there tell us about I, your books what are your yeah. books about uh, well um let me can i even uh, that'll upset the author. uh so i the first thing i did that really i guess on the radar well i i self-published I did, you know, in the old days when you people did zines and 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 you know, fan fiction is what kept Star Trek alive to get to the club stage, to get to the convention stage, to to show numbers, and so books came out and they saw, you know, the the original tech manual that I bet a lot of your viewers, the the original series tech manual in the seventies, that was on the New York Times bestseller list number one for sixteen weeks and made all the money people wake up and go, oh, you know, way before we got to the first movie but um uh my book was the, the book that i was privileged to do professionally was the next generation companion which a lot of people have come up to me since and said oh this is the first book i spent my own money on or this is the this was the best christmas present i ever had you know <laughs> but there's a whole saga with that but i had self-published my own kind of encyclopedia thing i love b joe trimble's original series concordance encyclopedia I love the original tech manual and the blueprints and all that kind of the 70s era first generation stuff when Star Trek was new and very geeky and the older generation thought this was some fad the kids are into. And it's, you know, before the geeks won. And um, um, that's so what everything I did was based on that and in the making of Star Trek that Stephen Whitfield Poe wrote, like how the show actually came together. And that's what and you know you love the actors but the behind the scenes the making of it and also the canon the universe how the you know how the world of star trek is put together the real world and the fictional world i guess and that's what really any, any highlights me. from that larry that you that huh? you think would be interesting to share how it's made something something somebody might not realize oh well a meta to all this is when i read i mean um when i read <laughs> when I read the making of Star Trek, uh, I didn't realize that there hadn't been really any mass market. This is a mid seventies edition. I didn't realize there weren't any. It, you know, it go, they go through and they talk about how it evolved and how Gene Roddenberry wrote the wrote his pilot and idea and all of that and kind of where the idea came from. I didn't know then that he was working on a show about a um, idealistic young, young marine, the lieutenant. And they had one of the episodes was about racism and it was censored. And that's what pissed him off to want to. He says, well, we'll do a science. And he loved science fiction. He loved uh, Gulliver's Travels and and some of the, you know, 1900, 20th century sci-fi before it got very spacey. But he's like, if I do a sci-fi show with purple people and spaceships and lasers and I slip the message in, that way the censors won't see what I'm doing. And I can still talk about adult themes, but we'll make it be an adult show, which is kind of what happened. Mm. And, uh, but that was, you know, being censored was what finally pushed him to do his sci-fi show. Anyway, you get that kind of a story, but this is mainly more about just how TV works. And even though it's 50 years later, 
there's still producers and prop people and you know visual effects people and assistant directors and people write scripts and they break them down and how to shoot them and then how do you put them together at the end and edit and i didn't realize as i read this and i'm thinking i'm getting all this star trek insight back when there were just 79 one hour episodes of the original that there had never been a book just for the layman about how tv's made mm-hmm. of anything and years later i saw somebody point that out that a lot of people read this that they weren't so much a Star Trek fan, but they our, our college professors would get this as a very accessible way to show how, a, you know, you get all the Star Trek stories and insight, but it's just, he goes down the creative team and what, you know, what a production designer does and what's the difference between an art director and production designer and, you know, all these kinds of things and the difference between TV and movies. So that's a, that's kind of a meta thing that I, I learned. But when I when I was in high school, I had a million hobbies, I, like model railroaded and stamp collected and model rockets and built models. And um, I didn't know what I wanted to do when I grew up in high school. I did I did newspaper. I did uh, I edited in paper and I was in speech and theater and all that. And I had no idea. And I went to college kind of hedging between journalism and between theater. And And the bottom line is. Um, that's really what kind of prepared me for my Star Trek life because I didn't, it wasn't planned, but I knew what I enjoyed doing. And then I kind of got a rude awakening that what I enjoyed doing as a fan wasn't what the masses maybe enjoy. <laughs> I already mm-hmm. knew I didn't want to write fan fiction about Spock. I knew that wasn't my, th- I love Spock. I love all the characters. I love Dr. McCoy and Scotty and you know everything, but I knew Spock and Kirk got all the attention and I'm always an underdog guy. And um, um, I, I, uh, I eventually wound up that that's just where my attention was. I thought when I went to my first overnight real sci-fi convention, I took all of my behind this. I could put it all in one box then, but I took my behind the scenes Star Trek books and things with me because I thought that's what I thought we all sat around and talked about that. I had an interesting awakening when I got there and saw that's not what <laughs> what people did. But over the years, I realized I was kind of in a minority, and the internet's helped make me see that I'm not in such a tiny minority, the, the tech heads and the canonistas and all of that. But um, I realized I was in kind of a niche as, as far as if you really got into what your passions were. But what finally happened was after I did the companion book was and talked about behind the scenes and how things were done or how they weren't done, and then you know, put continuity together and all of that and why the writers did what they did and the, you know, and the things that were not done or deleted and cut out and all that was it dawned on me that being a fan, when I would read things in magazines and it would either be bland and shallow in Trek magazines, or it was like, why aren't you doing a story about this? Or why do you have that person? You're not asking them that. And it dawned on me later that having a journalism background and I worked in news in daily print news in Oklahoma for 10 years and having a journalism background and a theater entertainment. Here's the mindset of creatives and then being a fan on top of that. And it was like a perfect three-legged preparation for what I was lucky enough to be able to fall into doing, got picked to do the companion book. And then we came to LA and that's kind of what's animated me. But I, I look back, it's like a fan wouldn't know how to deal with entertainment people. Uh, a journalist might know how to do an interview, but they wouldn't know the things to ask. And um, 
you know, or they might not know the way the biz worked. And then the business, the, the entertainment reporter uh, wouldn't know the Star Trek details to ask about. So anyway, it was that dawned on me later on that that's done me, you know, really well. Can I ask you something? Because, you know, my background is actually sociology of communication and studied mm -hmm. you know, mass media. And the way that you're picturing yourself being a fan and then going behind the scene and you expecting, but also having these three perspectives, different perspective on, on what being a fan of a show is. Do you think that now because of the internet, because there is no more secret anymore, is it different to be a fan now? Does it have a different meaning compared with back in the 70s? I mean, I'm a, you know, I, I, I was born... Uh, in 69 so i'm like you know i was a kid at 70s yeah, and yeah. 80s so it is different we didn't have the technology well, yeah it's way different but i would say this and this is what i keep this is what i said like 20 years ago um because i remember when enterprise was canceled in 2005 and at the time the magazine was supposed to still go the magazine went away for a completely different reason um the owner decipher bought out the official fan clubs and um decipher games and then they almost they went all but bankrupt because the owner's brother-in-law was embezzling from the company so anyway <laughs> so tv star trek was ending and viacom was i call it the viacom divorce you know when cbs split off from paramount and that that era started 12 years and then on top of that the company that i did the fan club and the magazine that i worked for that was still standing you know went away within a couple of months and we had we had nothing for ages but I say that because before we knew the magazine was going away, the, the the last few weeks of Enterprise being filmed, I remember, I think it was Billy Peets, who was the lighting designer or lighting uh, chief lighting tech. We were walking and, and the closer it got to the end, the more access I wound up having because people were like, we don't care anymore. And I and I was at the lot three times a week anyway, working on fact files and things. But I remember walking along and they were all kind of in their world of, oh, my God, we've worked here for five or eight or 10 or some of them. There were about 20 people that had been there since the beginning of TNG and they hadn't had to put their resumes out in the real world. Right. And so a lot of people were thinking about their careers and life and how sad it was to for the for the whole era, not just enterprise to go away. And he was kind of we were talking about it and then he kind of pulled himself out of his thoughts and he looked at me and he goes, oh, what about you guys? Are you, are you what are you guys doing? Are you going to be OK? And at the time, I thought we were. And I said, but but what I said then, I still believe. I said, oh, don't worry about it. There will always be something about Star Trek. Like, there'll always be something to get into. There are still more layers. There's always something that's not known to go find. And and that was in 2005. And now we've had the whole, we've had the Kelvin, the J.J. Abrams movies. And now we've got the, you know, the new world or the new paradigm of, of the modern shows with 10 episodes season streaming and we've got two animated series and and you know and there have been missteps and hiccups and bad births but by and large the you know the new world is here and in media talk and business models now we've got the streaming model versus the old network commercial model and but all that aside what i said then i still think there will always be no matter what era no matter if it's 1964 or 2024 or 1994 there will always be more Star Trek out there. Well, I have a I have a saying, one of my taglines for Portal 47 is Portal 47 is for all the Star Trek fans who have no idea how much Star Trek they still have no idea about. 
And while that's what I like to deliver, that's it. In, that's in general. We will always be finding, even if it's just little slivers of coolness, mm-hmm. we'll always be finding, we'll unearth documents or we'll find an auction or we'll, we'll come across somebody who was the kid of somebody we thought had died and they'll have their parents' things and we're talking the 60s or maybe we're talking the 80s and 90s now or or even right now and right now there's so many there's so much complexity because it's cinematic tv i mean i'm just sitting here trying to think there are so many names and so many people involved you know the people on payroll if you look at it just in the perspective of a writers room like gene and gene coon or john gene and df john df black those guys there was like a head writer and maybe a second writer, and then everything was freelance. And maybe they had regular freelancers. Just I'm just talking about the writers. Mm-hmm. And then in the Berman era, we had a writer's room of five or six people, right? A showrunner, a head writer, and then five or six on staff from whether they were like entry-level staff writers to whatever up the producer ladder. There were five or six on staff, but they still had a ton. They were always taking pitches from freelancers. Now, we have a business model where there's maybe 10 episodes a year and it feels like there's 14 in the writer's room. It's like, who needs, you don't have, you don't have freelance scripts coming in. So it's like, that's a difference in the eras of, of the way the show that affected how the show was produced, you know, the input of the right, but also everybody on stage and all the departments and visual effects is a different thing. Now you watch the credits and not only are there 42, you know, producers up, up front above the line in the opening credits, you know, you, there's page and page and page and page of all the digital artists getting credit. I mean, the the assistants of assistants get credits now where they didn't. And a lot of people never had their names, in, like my wife, never had names and credits in the old days. And a lot of them do now that, you know, 20 years later, they get credited where they didn't then. But even then, there's always tons of people that work on shows you never see the names of. And I, I guess what I'm saying is, all of that means there's always more you can glean, more people you can talk to, more people that at the time, or maybe somebody worked for a couple of years and they got like happened to Dorothy Fontana and David Gerald the first two years of Next Generation, first year of Next Generation. Something blew up, they got burned, they didn't feel like, oh, you know, or they they felt like their world had been dinged and they go away, they don't want to talk about it for 10 or 20 years. But eventually that Ralph Sinensky, who's really the last living major director from the original series he's he'll he'll be a hundred in a cup in a year i think but is still up and talking he got fired part way through the tholian web and didn't want to talk about star totally unjustified because he got behind but it wasn't his fault it was costume's fault those those silver suits weren't ready on time and it threw them off but it, even then he says i would have been on time at the end but after four days i was a half day behind he had his plan to make it up, but Paramount had just bought Desi Liu and they were going to make an example of him. We're not going to hire directors that go over budget. We don't have much. Anyway, that burned him. He went off, finally got a, they blacklisted him, but he finally did work. He worked on the Waltons for years and did a lot of other things and then retired. But he didn't want to talk about Star Trek until he was directing a local theater and there were two Star Trek fans in the cast. And they found out he was Ralph Sininsky that directed This Side of Paradise, you know, The Spores. And Tholian Webb and uh, Zephyrin Cochran in Metamorphosis, and he, you know, and, and go down the line. And they were like, oh my God, it's Ralph Sininsky. And he's like, it's 30 years, you know, it's 20 years later, 30 years later. And he's, and he's amazed that these two actors, otherwise normal people actors in this play randomly, 
want to sit down and the, and then they wind up yelling at him about why he's been so quiet and never shared this and he had this whole it's like okay well maybe i don't have to be burned my whole life by what happened and i can share it and that happens to people so that's what i mean when yeah there will always be more star trek it, we've got new stuff now and that'll that's a whole new fresh stuff but there's still tons more from the old days or you know 20 year statute limitations somebody's fired why did somebody really leave not to be tabloid about it but uh, it's part of the history you know larry larry how do you, how do you um how do you uncover and unearth all of this stuff and and then probably more importantly cuz my brain is going a mile a minute how how do you remember <laughs> all of this stuff well this is okay number 1 this is top line stuff and some of this we just like i just we just had ralph sanitsky on um the trek files and i had been trying for five when i found that he was still with us but he lives up in monterey and I had to get there. Um, I thought I'd lost him after four or five years, but I finally didn't last year, went up and talked to him. And it wasn't like a four hour thing. I was just there for an hour, hour and a half, but we wound up using a lot of it as special editions of the Trek Files, my podcast for Roddenberry. So that's that's like fresh in mind. And there's a ton that I've got on tape and I don't even have transcribed. I'm, I'm working on ways to get some of this out, but it's it's what I did for the companion and then and then um, I just kept going after the next gen and, and I didn't do the DS9 companion, but we were there. My wife worked, everybody knew me and trusted me and I had the access. And so the whole Berman era, I did, I've got five, 600 hours of, of cassettes here that need to be digitized. Some has, but I need to digitize it. And then a lot of photography of my own, not a lot of it, just like going into warehouses and shooting props or so, occasionally some actual moments. But, you know, there were still access limits. I didn't have free run of the place or anything until oh. almost feels like until the end. But but that's that's what it is. It's more people say, oh, here's Larry. He's the trivia king of Star Trek and, you know, Dr. Trek. And I go, no, no, no. I there's a lot that's up here, but I've forgotten a lot. But the important thing is, if I don't know it, I know who I know where to look it up or who to ask or I know where the bones are buried. <laughs> so how how do you decide? what to focus on like I'm, I'm just curious what is the project that is more relevant for you right now and and how did you decide with all this information you have these resources the network this connection how you decide how to focus on something what what push you to do that well some would say i'm not focused um <laughs> i know that feeling including me well part of this i had a I had a very nice growing synergy after we moved to LA, you know, I did the I did the companion. Um, things started. A part of this was like the world was changing around me. Technology, media was changing, and the popularity of Star Trek was on the swing up, on the upswing. And I got to edit the Communicator magazine for eight years when that was growing. And Fact Files was a globe, not in the states, but around the rest of the world was a very intensive that needed. Um, there was a whole team of people working on it, but they needed some direction. So I, I only wrote some pieces. I wrote the tech things in layman's term. How does the transporter work? And how, you know, uh, and also walk the line between not just ripping off like Mike and Denise Akut and Rick Sternbach's tech manual because it was for the franchise, but this was the first time it was being adapted to something else. So that was a that was a and I knew everybody, so that was like not trying to. Anyway, there was that, but also like just telling image people what to do or getting blueprints or getting designs for artists to do 3D exploded drawings and that kind of thing. So there was a lot of 
that kind of thing happening. And that was big, but that was just because Star Trek got popular. So now it was it was pushing, you know, the commercial possibility of what can we make money? I mean, there's, there's a crass commercial side to it, but also if it's what fans want anyway, then the thing is, are they giving it to fans and are they giving it to fans in a good quality way? And for a long time, we went from the 70s and 80s where fans griped about Paramount and Paramount this and Paramount that to the 90s and the early aughts when there was like a golden era there of people like me had the keys to things and were getting getting good stuff out to fans at a high level, especially when the studio couldn't afford to. The studio now, Paramount, CBS and now Paramount, they document there's so much done on the modern shows but that wasn't done back in the day they they only had budget for like a photographer for one day of any seven day shoot on next gen or ds9 or enterprise or voyager so there are days when you know and in the old days you didn't make a screen cap so it was like if a photographer didn't shoot it eventually you could get a screen cap by the late 90s but it was either going to cost a ton or it was going to be grainy because you're taking it off the original you know you didn't have high def to put I mean, that's part of the evolution of where things are now. And that was a that was a thing that now is like not even a concern. You just you just screen grab what you want. But if you now want you do an N- NFT thing, for it, huh? Or you do an NFT for it. Yeah. But see, <laughs> there was a there was a Star Trek licensed NFT. I'm not so I'm not so about the whole thing myself. But what I do know is before I could care one way or the other about it, the, the fandom rose up. And there was a licensed NFT that wound up lasting about a month or two because most of the fandom rose up and said they didn't like it. <laughs> there was such mm-hmm. a ba- like, and and why are you in? Why are you licensing an NFT? And isn't that run counter to everything that Star Trek's about? And you know, anyway, yeah. So that right. didn't that didn't go. But um, I'm sorry, I'm rambling. I, I do that. <laughs> I, I, okay. I was trying to get back to the point here of things kept evolving. Up until the time everything blew up in 2005, like I said, three ways. The studio blew up and had the live action uh, Star Trek ended and my last personal real connection to it kind of blew up. And I never did answer your question, I think. I think in in a way you did, but the question is more like, maybe I'll change it a little bit. Like, what do you think the fan of today, the big fan of Star Trek today would want? I mean, I ask you. I guess my short answer do? to your original question would be, if if it's a, if it's all out there for fans and there's no mystery left, I would just say that's a false that's a false assumption. There will always be more to dig mm-hmm. out. There's if nothing else, as as crazy as this sounds, the mysteries of the past are just things we didn't get to. Like Gene Kuhn died in 1973. There's tons I would love to ask him. So we have his assistant is still with us. She's 80. She's amazing. You know, people that knew him, we, but that's a case of time. Now it's almost like a case of complexity. There's so many people working in so many layers uh, and, you know, digital work makes that easier, but also it makes it more insane because instead of, you know, Matt Jeffries drawing in the sixties that then a model made or made something from it. Well, now there's somebody's prelim that's made better that's then turned into CGI. And then at some point, maybe somebody made a real model of it to sit on a desk as a prop. <laughs> so there are now, so did, many do layers Do the fans now. contribute? Yeah. Sorry, yeah. Larry. Do the fans contribute as well? Um, going to cons and, and going, I don't know if they get invited to special shoots and things like that, where they're actually capturing and creating and sharing to, to further complicate things or well it it happened in i don't know about a formal way there's well 
if somebody could figure out a way to to make money on it, there might be. But it just uh, uh, I didn't mean that to sound so crass. But in the old days, you know, the whole nature of I mean, there have been sci-fi cons since the 30s and, and first fandom and sci-fi, but there was nothing on screen, things on screen. And then when TV came on TV, one out of 100, you know, for every forbidden planet or day the earth stood still, you'd have 100 schlock, you know, B-movie, bug-eyed monster or irradiated, you know, praying mantis movies or something. And so real science fiction fans that were serious about and sometimes serious to a fault. You know, they didn't have a lot of respect. It was more like, okay, show me so that when a forbidden planet, you know, or a, or a um, day the earth stood still, uh, when that comes along, then I'll set up and take notice. But as a as a you know the the um, the Hugos that were the sci-fi awards didn't have a regular dramatic presentation. They would only vote one when something good came along because year to year there was mainly crap and schlock. And then TV was even worse because it had to be so low budget. They didn't even have money to put into even bad visual effects. They had like, you know, they couldn't even do a Flash Gordon rocket on a string with a sparkler in the back. And then Twilight Zone was really the first time to break that. But that was an anthology. And that's cool. But it wasn't like regular characters in a regular setting. And then and then a year apart came Lost in Space and Star Trek. And Lost in Space, you know, started serious, but then quickly devolved. And so, and you know, sci-fi fans, and you could even say sci-fi snobs, <laughs> lit snobs, um, you know, rightfully went uh, kind of, you know, turned up their nose and said, this is kitty fair. And then Star Trek came along and a lot of them enjoyed it, but it was still just one show among the wasteland out there. If you weren't looking at the classics and when Star Trek fandom blew up, not only did it blow up and it was a phenomenon to the mundane media world and publishing world and events world, it was also a phenomenon to sci-fi world. And after a while, the first year, you talk about gatekeeping now, the first generation or two of fame, like 68, 69, 70, here's this army of Trekkies. And yes, it was mainly women, not guys, but a lot of guys. But I mean, the the female, the, the Spock and Vulcan infused, I, I am driven to write fan fiction is my reaction to the show. And if you're going to cancel my show, I'll just make more of my own. Ha, you can't take it away. I mean, that was really the attitude. And the pushback at the lit cons, like Worldcon and some of the big cons was, uh, for the first year or two, it was like, that's great. Cool. Welcome. Glad you're here. You may want to read this stack of the, you may want to read some Highline and Asimov and read some you know, classics. And then when that didn't happen after a year or two or three, because they only cared about Star Trek, then it was like, okay. Guys, you, if you're not going to get serious about this, then maybe you should just go off and start your own thing. And that's what they did. And aside from Comic-Cons, you know, old Comic-Cons would be guys going through dusty boxes of comics. And, it, you know, 100 people in some secondary place somewhere. Comic-Cons became Comic-Cons because comics came to Hollywood and you had faces and personalities and actors and big money involved. And, you know, San Diego Comic-Con turned the corner there. But until that... Even Trek cons were little and dinky and what are the crazy kids doing now? But that's where it started. And that's, there were sci-fi for years, but the, the we used to call them media cons as opposed to lit cons. And I would even say lit snob cons because they kind of pushed the media, the Star Trek people. And then very soon there was Star Wars and more sci-fi of good and bad quality, you know, eventually. It all happened there in the 70s. But 
we had litcons and mediacons. Well, now mediacons kind of a misnomer because comic cons have taken that over because media came to the lit. <laughs> you know, first comics and then other things. So it, that's an evolution. But I say for all the comic con culture, and now chambers of commerce and hotels chase after, you know, because it's big bucks. But you know, yeah, in the 80s, go there. you were in the closet if you were a fan. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. That's all turned around too, and that's part of this saga. That's so it's interesting that we still we have new we have fresh track to get into now week to week, and there's a different you know that's amazing. But for twelve years, what I call the fallow years, between oh five and twenty seventeen, even with the JJ the JJ movies were just one offs, and people got excited about it. And I said in in twenty in two thousand eight nine, whether this is good or it's bad, it's just a two hour movie. But people were so you know, starry-eyed about it, and people in the industry, in the Trek industry were, because, oh, yay, look, we're not canceled. We didn't, it didn't all die in 2005. And I'm like, yeah, guys, but you're going to see the movie, wake up the next day and go, I have to wait three more years to get two more hours? I mean, it's a it's a math equation. Compare with a week back Yeah, compare place. with a weekly show, 20, whether it's 26 times a year times two, or it's 10 times five ser series year-round. Either way, Star Trek was invented to be, you know, weekly adventures with characters that evolve and a cool background that's made by people with continuity from week to week, not a group of movie people show up every three years and do a movie for two hours. Even if it's the same cast, a lot of the creatives change from movie to movie, which is exactly what, and these are movie people who do other projects. They don't want to promote this 24 seven. When you're an actor in a series, that's your, that's your livelihood and you want it to go the old days you wanted to go as many years you could so you're going to go promote and these are people who don't want to be caught dead going on the circuit because it'll look like they they can't you know movie actors until they're ready to retire or unless they're really comfortable in their skin then they don't they won't do that and so there was a lot of that's where my background helped around to 2010 2011 and that's really when things between social media coming in and no TV track, but a movie and a movie that a lot of people didn't appreciate. And on top of all that, it was a different paradigm. I mean, it's just, I found out there was a place for me to kind of explain that. It's just, it took a few years for the video. I didn't know how. Mm -hmm. And then I eventually found Portal 47 and we were doing virtual things five years before the pandemic. And now the pandemic's caught and everybody Zooms now. But that's what I'm saying. All those pieces have evolved just in the, you know, and we went from a time where, you know, when The Sopranos was on on HBO and no one could conceive of, of, of a cable thing winning all the Emmys. And we within five years, we've gone from the cable channels to the streaming channels taking all the Emmys and having the budgets and the power and the clout. And now it was a big deal when Abbott Elementary got an Emmy on the sitcom side because it was a, still a network show. And it was like, oh, my God, really? It's not too long ago that if you were like, are you a TV actor or are you a movie Exactly. Actor, right? I mean, yeah. That wall's gone. And now it's gone. Absolutely. Listen, this is fantastic. And I, I want to ask you one last <laughs> I'm sorry. Thing. I sucked all the, all the oxygen out of the room. No, I, I'm sure our audience that are, you know, in, in love with, with the show as you are, or at least partially, is it's probably hard to be as in love as you are with the show but i want to i want to go full circle because we started with the nasa we started with going to the moon and i want to i want to ask your opinion on how do you feel the artemis the artemis going mm -hmm. back to the moon now 
I, my opinion is that it didn't get enough fandom as I thought it would to go back to the moon. Maybe because I look back and even if I was just born when it was 1969, I have, I'm like you. I look at the Mercury, Apollo, Germany and all of that and I'm like, whoa, are you kidding me, right? Mm-hmm. And I'm like, we go back, we're going to go and stay. We're talking about living there. And I don't know. I feel like there is not the people stuck in front of TV to watch that black and white yeah. granular images. So I would love your opinion as a big fan of the all of all what you feel about it. I totally know where you're coming from. And there have been times over the year, just the last few years, where I felt guilty. I don't know about stopping and going in and watch because now what do we we have we have TVs everywhere on our phones and tablets and desktop computers and you know you can you know you can stream and watch everywhere. So it's not the days it's but it's like everything else. The days when the finale of MASH got, I don't know what it was, whatever million, like those days will never have the only thing they can do that now is something live that's planned, like the mm-hmm. Super Bowls. Mm-hmm. You know, and you know, but the idea of the whole world is going to stop and all watch the same thing, or everybody's watching the Watergate hearings or something, or whatever. Um, that doesn't happen very often. Now, you know, the, the World Cup now, maybe, but that depends where you are. So that's not going to happen just because everybody people can all be watching but i felt guilty over the last few years because there have been all these successes and it's like later on some of it's being spoiled because we've got so much media it's like oh i'll watch the it's kind of like the way i'm watching some sports games now it's kind of like i'll just watch the highlights later did they win or they lost oh well Mm. you know but the artemis launch i i really all kind of coalesced and not only did I watch, but I was I was like doing some social media about it. Hey, everybody, we are going, you know, here's Artemis. Mm-hmm. If you yeah. missed the Apollo launches, have watched some history here. I mean, I was right. in, I'm with you. I was yeah, in that yeah, mood I and I, I watched that. And then it got close to it. And my wife was either asleep or she was dozing because it was like at midnight Pacific time. Or, yeah, or yeah 11.51. They went yeah, 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 yeah. I went in. To what passes for our, our big plasma screen in the living room. I went in and actually flipped over to the NASA channel to watch the launch on the TV in the living room. I just felt it's like this is history and, and something horrible. You know, I don't mean to be, you know, uh, ambulance chaser here. Something horrible could happen like Challenger. But that wasn't my motive. I mean, I was hoping because the politics and the culture behind this launch and everything was, you know, the private guys are running away with it now. And can we still do something that's government license, you know, pre- prepared and all mm-hmm. the delays and all the renaming and all the reconception, which I don't know the details of, but I know it all happened. It's kind of like Star <laughs> Trek. It's like, if I want to get the details, I can, but I know basically going yeah. by in the ether that it happened. Yeah. So I'm, but I want to watch and I'm like, okay. And my wife's the same way. We're both suckers for, you know, a right stuff even. Mm-hmm. But we watched the launch on the big TV in the living room for Artemis. And as far as like what the rest of the world was doing, it's like I was doing it (laughs) like anybody's keeping score. I mean, I'm keeping score in my own head. It's Mm -hmm. like all the times I didn't watch all these incremental pieces of progress going by, like the launches to Mars or, you know, the rovers Mm -hmm. and all that. But I'm going to do this. And and pray that it happens and do a, you know, go Artemis, go like in the old days, go, you know, Godspeed, John Glenn. I mean, whatever. Um, 
and then afterwards, but you're, you're, but I thought that it did. I thought that it did get more than anything had gotten attention, if that's what you mean. I thought it did have more attention and social notice than any launch in ages. Now, yeah, it kind no, of quickly, or maybe you're saying it quickly faded, which is what happened with the later moon launches. People weren't exactly ready. like I, I was monitoring, well, not really monitoring, but looking on, you know, social media. I'm yeah. like, and there's that apps night, it was great. And, and then, like, I'm like, you guys, we're still going around, we're taking picture of a definition never happened before. There's the moon, and there is the far planet. side of the moon coming back with exactly. And nobody, you know, nobody really cared much. At least that's my impression. I mean, I know people that did. But well, anyway. the other the other part of it is media has changed. Like I said, we've got media everywhere, so we're a little spoiled. But True. the other thing is... There's not that one channel, like, now you're going to watch it. Yeah. But the other thing is, where we were in 1962 or 1969, uh, where we were versus the newness of it, that's that was a much bigger gap then we've it's taken so long to increase i mean we're basically doing the same thing again I, I don't mean to be crass but you know or dismissive but to a lot of people we're just doing what we've already done now the first launch with people aboard to go to mars well i would hope you know this is well, unmet to me the fact that this is totally robotic blows me away oh yeah i know and snoopy we're gonna have a robotic there. splashdown just amazes me but as snoopy was there for zero gravity so i was excited yeah you know? yeah yeah right hello well listen Larry, i'm just saying I, I think we're closer to i don't think we're as far apart it's not as big a, a huge pioneering leap now as it was then even though in a lot of ways it is it and we're so used to cgi and sci-fi and 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 our attention span is is cut and the up international with... space station and the rockets that take off and come back but you know that's right. uh we'll see where it goes larry i know we went in a lot of different places but i really <laughs> enjoy the conversation i i know sean is having some technical problems so he didn't participate as much as he normally I'm, does i'm sitting here as a guest as like a guest. totally enjoying it all right that's cool questions in my head but um no, it's fantastic, and I, I appreciate you uh, sharing some stories and and. Uh, well, I feel like we did go today. all over the place, but that you know. We but just that's cool. That's cool, that's and you perfect. know what? I'm gonna say this: anytime you want to come back and you want to talk about something else, if you have fun, do so. We're gonna look into share your uh, your podcast, uh, any link to to your uh, to your own website and everything that that you do for those that don't know. Uh, what you're doing right well, now cool. so please share it with us and we'll put it on the podcast cool. notes well let me throw real briefly let me throw one more yeah, thing to tickle please. you because one yep. thing that's been a happy accident that came out of me trying to figure out how to take everything i do and share it with fandom and that's what portal is is a backstage all year long like people that like i mentioned or people that go to a con and they have con letdown blues afterwards where we do this you know we have behind the scenes people and and things and, and have round tables and talk but what grew out of that was uh, having the awareness from call sheets and things where the location, this kind of wacky little sub niche of things where all the location filming was done. So I know there's the sets that are That's now cool. licensed. You can go to the original bridge and now they're building a next year in upstate New York, but especially here around L.A. And some of the famous ones like Vasquez Rocks, you can't get much more faint, you know, the Gorn fight place and of other things, too. But there's like, and now with Picard in LA, there's there's over 60 places, big and small, famous and not famous around LA. And I offer concierge tours, I call Trekland Treks, 
Sometimes we have a planned one. I'm doing a special thing for the people on the cruise next year, the day before they leave from LA and the day after. And I have a part, a guy that partner once has me come in. He does all kinds of geek niche tours. And we do a big, like a multi-day that we're doing in July next year in LA and San Francisco. But that's a whole, that's like experiences. That's a different, and it's just coming up and getting big and it's been kind of wacky. And I really enjoy that because I'll, I'll bring the shooting data but then we're there live and people cosplay and they want pictures or they bring their action figures along. I mean, it's it's a lot of fun. And that's a thing that's total another like totally new thing that nobody else is doing. I love it. And I have to explain it to people first, but they get so if you go to my site, yeah, you'll see some yeah. links. And if you want to come back and we talk all about that, that that's awesome. I mean, look, I, I grew up in Italy. I moved in LA in 2000. I still go in places and I'm like, holy shit that's where they filmed that movie uh mm-hmm. so if you have a passion for something you know uh you i think it's uh, it's exciting if you're a fan there's there's a lot to do a lot to discover yeah it, it's kind of I, I have friends that do that like across the board just like general movies but i kind of backed into it with star trek it was kind of like a specialized yeah you know niche but it's a lot of fun and just the smiles on people's faces when they go oh. to that or they go to starfleet academy you know or they go somewhere and they go ah and you're yeah. and you're comparing the clip and the frame you know on from the thing you've watched for years with the real life and it's just it's just something you can't um, you can't explain to people till you do it i, I agree i agree <laughs> all right larry thank you so much everybody stay tuned for another episode of audio Sino coming up i don't know what it's going to be about but i'm pretty confident it'll be good and this one for sure was so once again thank you sean for mostly watching the show and listening um <laughs> Sorry. Uh, uh, but uh and thank you so much larry it was a great pleasure well thanks yeah, for having you truck well cheers <laughs>